You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. All right, well, good morning. So if you are a kindergartner, first grader, uh, Miss Miriam and Miss Becky are over here, ready to take you to Bible study. So K4, K5, first grade, you are welcome to head off to Bible study. And let me invite the rest of you to turn to the, the book of Jude, the book of Jude. In the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation, this is your first time with us here this morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. And just so thankful that you're here worshiping the Lord with us this morning as we give praise to Jesus Christ and exalt him. And that's really why we are here. That's why we're doing what we're doing this morning is to find our hearts glad and, and overjoyed as we think about Jesus, his, his power, his love, his justice, and his mercy that he's poured out on us through Jesus Christ. And so as we look to Jude this morning, we will see more about who this wonderful Jesus is that we have gathered to worship this morning. So Jude, we're going to look at verse 14 through 16. Jude, verse 14 through 16. We've been working verse by verse through this book And we find ourselves now in verse 14 through 16. Let me read God's word for us. We'll pray and then we'll we'll dive in. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we have already sung and have prayed and have read, Lord, you are wonderful. And Lord, you are with us in all circumstances, in all times. Lord, you have been so faithful. And Lord, as we look to Jude now, Father, we pray again that you would be faithful to us as your word is preached. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to open up our hearts and our ears to hear what you have written in your word. And Lord, that it would pierce our hearts. And Lord, that we would be convicted of sin where there is any in our lives. But Father, that we would be quick to go to Jesus where there is mercy and grace and love and forgiveness offered at his cross. So Father, I pray for all who are here this morning, wherever they've come from or wherever they've been this week. Lord, that even though, Lord, they may have sinned in egregious ways and are under your judgment. Father, I pray, Lord, that today would be a day in which we would all be refreshed, Lord, by your love in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So Jude has talked quite a bit about God's judgment upon these false teachers and just upon sin. And so we've talked about that quite a bit these last few weeks, and we're going to talk about God's judgment again this morning, because that's what the text talks about. But, you know, we, we've talked over this series that probably the only Bible verse that most people know that aren't Christian 
is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, right? Judge not that you be not judged. Again, people might not know anything about the Bible, but they at least know some form of that verse. And it often gets used in a more popular variation, a paraphrase, if you will. Hey, man, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. You heard people say that, Christian, non-Christian alike. Hey, man, you just, you just can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And that idea that God alone is judge is certainly true. They're right about that. God alone will judge our souls. But as I've noticed, and as you listen to the subtext of what's being said, most often people use that phrase. Again, typically it's the extent of their Bible knowledge. But it's almost used as a dodge, isn't it? I mean, you can't judge me. Only God can judge me because the remark is, is underplayed with this assumption that God will not judge me for what I'm doing. That you may be judging me, but God is the judge. And the assumption that people have is God is not going to judge me. So what does, what does people really mean by this? Is the idea that God will alone can judge me and I don't believe God is going to judge me for what I'm doing. I believe that God is going to accept my behavior and that the only thing that God will judge any one of us before is, is for judging another person. The only judgment we can make is making a judgment, and that's, that's the only sin that God will judge us for. Right? This is the way our world thinks. Christian, non-Christian life. This is just so undergirded in our culture. And similarly here, these false teachers in Jude warns that Jude is warning us about, they sound remarkably similar to our culture today. They, like so many today, have championed ideas of, of love and mercy as they think about God, both of which are true. But within their understanding of God, they have no place of God as judge and that the judgment that God brings upon sinners. You see, these false teachers believed that God's grace means that they can now live however they want. Jude calls them perverters of grace. And so they live in grace, and they live now without fear of God's judgment, so they go and live however it is they want to live. Whatever desires they have, they indulge. This is the way these false teachers have been teaching and promoting. And so Jude is wrapping up a series of arguments that he's begun making in verse 4, right? So if you look back at verse 4, what's going on in Jude? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So if you've been tracking with us through this series in Jude, these last few sermons, we've seen as we've been working through this text, Jude's just been expounding about how do we know these false teachers are condemned? They're already condemned, so how do we know it? And so Jude's been marshalling biblical evidence and illustration after illustration, trying to demonstrate why these false teachers are condemned. And he affirms Jude has the just judgment of God against sinners and against false teachers, and he emphasizes that these false teachers have already been condemned by the prophetic word of God. And so in our passage of Jude today, we're, go we're going to see that Jude is going to affirm, again, his assessment of these false teachers, that they will be judged by the Lord. So here's what we're going to learn this morning. Here's the, the sermon summary, if you want to write this down, the sermon in a sentence. 
the Lord will execute judgment on the ungodly. He will execute judgment upon the ungodly. An unpopular truth today, I'm sure, but one in which Jude is really making sure, emphasizing heavily that we get and that we understand. However we decide to find God's love, his mercy, his compassion, we have to also remember that God is just, he is holy, and he is wrathful in his judgment towards sinners like you and like me. So we're going to unpack what Jude has in mind as we look at this. So as we look at the text this morning, we're going to really think through it in two main questions. First, we're going to ask who will judge, and then the second, we will ask who will be judged. So who's doing the judging? And then who is going to be judged? Those are the two questions that are going to guide us through the text this morning. And so let's ask that first one. Who will judge? Who will judge? And of course, the answer to this question, according to Jude, is pretty clear. It's the Lord. The Lord is the judge. As the God of of heaven, God alone, the Lord will bring his divine judgment upon the earth. And so even though these false teachers believe that they're not going to be judged for how they're living their lives, Jude just completely shatters those delusions, right? God is not what you wish him to be or what he, what you desire him to be. God is who he reveals himself to be. And, and so Jude is just shattering that, that these false teachers just have this false perception about God. It's not true. It's not real. So he reminds them, as we've looked through Jude, that he reminds them that God will execute his judgment upon the earth. This is what Jude is reminding the church and ultimately these false teachers as he's writing this letter is that God will execute his judgment. And so to help reinforce his point, he cites a quotation from the book of First Enoch. First Enoch. Now you might be first wondering, I've never heard that book before. We'll talk about it more in just a second. It's not a book in the biblical canon. But you might first be thinking, well, okay, I'd like to learn more about that book, First Enoch, but, but first, who is Enoch? I don't know who that guy is. So you might be asking that question. Well, Enoch is mentioned in a few verses in Genesis chapter 5. In fact, if you want to, you can flip over there and see him for yourself if you'd like. So Genesis chapter 5 chronicles the genealogy from Adam to Noah. So it's one of those genealogy passages. And so the genealogy in Genesis 5, if you've got it open, you can flip there and see it. It's kind of structured in a a pattern. So each man gives his age at his birth, at the birth of his son. And then it's stated how much longer he lived after the birth of that son. And then the man's account in the genealogy kind of comes to an abrupt end with the recurring phrase, and he died. (laughs) And he died. And then it picks up with the next guy, right? And so that's the way that genealogy is structured in Genesis chapter 5. However, when it gets to Enoch and this line from, from, from uh, Adam to Noah, we see that the, there's a break in the pattern that takes place. So you can look at Genesis chapter 5, verse, verse 21 through 24. We see Enoch here. This is what the text says. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So notice there's a a change that happens, right? 
that, 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 and he died that occurs at the end of all those other guys, it's not there. It seemed like God took him. That's what the text says. So Enoch, like the prophet Elijah, who was taken up in a chariot of fire, Enoch seems to be one of those few guys in the Bible that actually escaped a natural death. And we don't know any more than that, other than he seems to have just gone to be with the Lord. So though Genesis doesn't tell us much, we do, Genesis does tell us that Enoch had a close walk with the Lord and that one day the Lord just took him. So the mystery and strangeness of Enoch's departure kind of fueled the imagination of the Jewish people uh, in the first century and before. And it eventually led to a, a group of books that were written in Enoch's name, which we call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Enoch. So throughout Jude, we've kind of talked about this book of 1st Enoch a little bit because Jude has cited it and alluded to it in his language quite a bit, but it's not until verse 14 and 15 of Jude that he actually makes a direct quotation from this book of 1st Enoch. So some people are disturbed by Jude's citation of 1st Enoch because the origins of this book, 1st Enoch, is, is unknown. So some fragments have been dated back to the 3rd century BC, but the most thorough copies of 1st Enoch we have actually come from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So Enoch certainly didn't write the book attributed to his name. So the author is unknown, although the author is claiming to be Enoch. It's a type of a book we call pseudepigraphal, meaning that it's a, under a false name. So the book is sort of like a book of myth or a book of legend for the Jewish people. It was never seen as authoritative, but it was a common book and story that, that people knew. Like we Americans have some myths and legends that, that we have, like George Washington cutting down a cherry tree and all these other kind of stories that we've, we've created around and we're not sure what's true, what's false. It's just kind of a myth and legend. First Enoch is kind of like that. People knew its story was a part of the popular consensus, although everybody realized that it wasn't scripture. It wasn't in the canon of Jewish scriptures. So Jude's use of 1st Enoch is best understood as illustrative rather than authoritative. And that's really important to remember. So Jude's use of 1st Enoch is illustrative, not authoritative, meaning that Jude did not hold 1st Enoch as sacred scripture. But rather what he's doing as he's compiling this argument is he cites a well-known book in, the, in this culture that everybody would have known to illustrate his points. So the New Testament authors do this actually quite more frequently than we realize, right? The Apostle Paul would often cite extra biblical sources and thinkers and philosophers from the culture and kind of bring them in and capture some truth preserved within their thinking to help bolster his argument in order to try to help connect with people who didn't agree with him and to try to show him the truthfulness, show them the truthfulness of God's word and of the gospel. So Jude is doing something kind of similar as he's referencing first Enoch. So we don't know for sure, but it is possible, right? This is all speculation, right? We're seeing one side of this telephone conversation. We only know about these false teachers from what Jude tells us about them. And so it is possible that these false teachers who seem to be presumptuous in their judgment had possibly been basing some of their beliefs on the teaching of first Enoch. It's a possibility. So Jude may be here. This may be one of the reasons why he uses it 
so much where Jude's almost trying to use their own source against them. Or Jude is just simply pointing out here by using First Enoch, the ludicrous nature of these false teachers' claims that God doesn't judge anybody. So Jude is like, oh, really? You don't think God judges anybody? Well, let me pull out a popular story that everybody believes and everybody realizes is true. Look here, even in popular literature, people know that God judges the ungodly. It's even in First Enoch, right? Everybody, everybody realizes that. So what you're saying then, false teachers, is ludicrous. It's, it's ridiculous. It's not true. So Jude may be demonstrating what everybody in his century knew that these false teachers were actually denying. This truth that God will execute his judgment. It's like, if you don't believe God's written word, I mean, just look at 1 Enoch. It says the same type of stuff. God will execute his judgment. So the quote from 1 Enoch that Jude references here has one change as he translates it into Greek. And he updates it a little bit with the use of the word Lord. Look at verse 14. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones. <coughs> so as Jude puts this into Greek, right, he, he includes this term to kind of clarify who is the one who will bring judgment. Well, it's the kurios, it's the Lord, it is the Christ, right? Jude is making clear as he's translating it that when he talks about the one who's coming to execute judgment, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who will come to execute judgment. And the Lord will come with 10,000s of his holy ones, lots of angels, to come and execute his judgment on all. So as Jude is, is sees the person of Christ, he, he recognizes Christ as the king, that Jesus is the, the judge who will possess all authority, who does possess all authority, and who will judge the living and the dead. That, that, that he not only makes judgments, but Jesus, by his divine authority, executes his judgment and brings the punishment that he decides is appropriate upon the ungodly. See, Jesus isn't just one who speaks judgment. He is one who has the authority to carry out his judgment. So Jesus himself stated, right? We, we read this passage in, in John 5 as we began this morning, that, that Jesus has been given authority from his, from his Father to execute judgment. So Jesus the Lord wields divine authority. Remember John 5, 22, we read earlier, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? To the Son, to the Son. Or as Jesus says later on in John 5, 27 through 29, and he, doesn't, he, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of the son, and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the son of man, the son who will carry out this judgment at the end of the age. This is what Jesus says about himself. Or as Paul would put it, this is Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. This is Jesus Christ. You see, every one of us, including you, including me, we will one day stand before the judge, Jesus, to give an account for our lives. Everything we have said, everything we have done, everything we have thought and wondered, God will hold us accountable for. All will be revealed. As we think about man's judgments, our judgments are flawed. It is 
not the, the right or the prerogative for the sinful world to come and judge you. That's what Jesus really has in mind when he says, judge not that you be not judged. That, that is what this is all about. None of us can be presumptuous or arrogant in our judgment on the soul of another. We can't do that. We're not God. But Jesus is not disregarding the whole concept of judgment in and of itself, as people like to use that verse. No, rather what Jesus is saying is that you will not be judged by your parents or peers. You will not be judged by your boss or your neighbors. You won't be judged by celebrities or politicians, but you will be judged by the creator God, the maker of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come riding on a white horse to execute his judgment on the earth. He will be the one that we give an account to. You will give an account to God for your life, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as, as Jude writes this warning about these false teachers, he, he just is doing away with any notion that these false teachers have that we, they might be escaping the judgment of God. No, what Jude is trying to help us all see this morning is that no one will escape the judgment of God. We will all be judged. And that leads to the second question. Who will be judged? Who will be judged? And I just answered that question, didn't I? Who will be judged? Verse 15, verse 16 makes it pretty clear. The Lord comes to execute judgment on all. On all. Isn't that what the text says? Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You see, as we think about divine judgment, it, we have to remember it's not just reserved for some, but, but it's for all, every human being. And how arrogantly do you and I, do we tend to live our lives? How little do we fear the judgment of God? How little of our lives, how, how much of our lives do we just do what we want to do, indulging our flesh and whatever desire, letting ourselves live with ourselves as our only judge, and yet forget that there is a God who will give an account. We make ourselves our own king. And how quickly do we spurn the judgment of the reality of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You see, in hypocrisy, we often find great pleasure and God judging other people, don't we? We find great pleasure that God will judge thieves and murderers. Or those who sin against us. We really like it when God judges them, right? We, we get excited about that. But how little do you and I, do we recognize our own sin? And that we will be convicted before God's throne as sinners, as the ungodly. Notice how frequently in this text, as he's citing for Stephen here, notice how frequently the word ungodly comes up in this text. Just in this, these couple sentences here, four different times. The Lord will convict the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds committed in an ungodly way and ungodly things spoken against God. All right, that's what First Enoch is saying here, right? Look how frequently this comes up from our actions to our motives to our speech. We are ungodly. And as Jude mentions the ungodly here, he has specifically in mind these false teachers that have rejected the idea of God's judgment. But indeed, this is a word that applies to every one of us. We are ungodly sinners who deserve the judgment of Christ. 
You see, few people believe about themselves that which true belief in the gospel presupposes. What do I mean by that? In other words, you have to acknowledge, before you become a Christian, before you can have salvation, you have to first acknowledge that you are an ungodly sinner who bears the weight of God's judgment. If you don't confess your sins, then you don't have any need for a Savior. If you don't realize that you are condemned before a holy God, then what, what need do you have for Jesus? Right? If you don't first realize that, you can't be a Christian. That our sin, your sin, brings judgment upon your soul, a weight, a burdening of your soul. You know, I think of, of Christian from the allegory written by John Bunyan called Pilgrim's Progress. You, I'm sure you might have heard of that book before. And so for the first part of this story called Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory, right? So Christian walks around with this burden on his back, this giant burden. He's carrying on his shoulders and his sin, he talks about it, it just weighs so heavy on him. And he, and he begins to set out on this journey to, to flee the city of destruction. He's trying to get to the celestial city, but he's got this burden on his back. And he, all he wants in life is just to be free from this weight that's crushing down on him. He wants it to be lifted on his back. He wants to be free from it. I think that's such a powerful illustration and image, isn't it? But if you've ever done any sorts of, sort of backpacking, you know, you know that backpack can start to feel kind of heavy after a while. Or if you've just wore a book bag loaded with supplies for a family trip to Disney World, you know how exhausting that can be. So I always get stuck with the book bag with all the water bottles in it. And so I'm walking around and it just it gets heavy and it weighs. And, and, you know, when you first start off, it doesn't feel too bad. It's like, all right, I can do this. And then the hours go by and you're walking and walking and walking with this, this extra weight on your back and there starts to be this annoying ache. And after several hours, you're, you're just sore. And all you want to do is get out of that long line and just sit down on a bench and take the book bag off, right? That's all you want, just to be, have a little sense of relief from that burden that's been on your back. You just want to rest. And I think the weight of spiritual judgment is a lot like that. Each of us carry around on our shoulders a bag of sins committed against God, ungodly deeds committed in ungodly ways, ungodly things said or thought about God. This is, these are sins that we've done. And the burden of sin keeps adding more weight to our soul. And we become distressed. Our heart aches. Our soul is anxious. And there's this pressure of guilt that we bear that exhausts us and terrifies us. And like Christian from Pilgrim's Progress, how we long to be freed from the judgment of our sins, from the burden on our backs. But the difference is that in our sin, there is no relief. There is no bench that you can plop down on and throw your backpack off and rest and recover. You can't take off the weight for a bit of reprieve. But the weight of sin is like a, a gnawing toothache. The, the burden of sin throbs and throbs and aches and hurts and affects your whole body, and you just cannot ignore it. Some try to. They try to mask the pain, the throb, the ache. They numb their soul with pleasure. They try to overpower the weight that they feel and the pain that they feel of divine judgment by just indulging whatever fleshly desires they can. Others just 
take another approach. They just try to keep themselves so busy with career and family demands and tasks on their list that they don't have time to pause and feel the weight of their own sin upon their shoulders. But yet, no matter how hard you may try, the weight of God's judgment, the burden of your sin will not leave you. Friend, you have to to pause this morning. You have to hear what God's word says, a truth that so many are disregarding today and casting to the side, but it is true because it is God's word. There is a God who executes judgment. That's reality. It's reality. It's what the text says, who God is. And all of us, every one of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's standards. And we now find ourselves under the condemnation of the one true and living God. In verse 16, Jude further applies this specifically to the, the false teachers. So he takes first Enoch, and then he brings it to bear on the situation of these false teachers. And here we get a sense of the sort of ungodliness that was manifest in the lives of these false teachers, but perhaps some of your sins are similar to some of these false teachers' sins. So so what does Jude say about these false teachers that might reflect your own heart? Perhaps you are, what does he say, a grumbler and malcontent. Perhaps you are constantly finding fault with God. You grumble against his will. You grumble against his people. Perhaps you're never satisfied, right? That's what being malcontent means. You're just never happy. Nothing is ever good enough for you. You want more and more and more. And and even perhaps like these false teachers, you're engaging, look at what the text says, following their own sinful desires. You're you're engaging anything that you want to do. Whatever you desire, you indulge gluttony to pornography from drunkenness to laziness to selfishness and pride. You're you're following your own feelings. You're doing whatever you desire, but you're still just not satisfied. You're not happy. There's an aching hole that you're feeling in your life and in your heart. You're like an animal enslaved to your own passions, and yet you still grumble. You're malcontent against God. Perhaps you're a loudmouth boaster, sarcastic, and arrogant and conceited. You manipulate others with your words and through your conversations and your relationships. You show favoritism to some so that you can gain advantage over others, so that you can look more respectable, more privileged, more superior to other people. You see, these are the sorts of ungodly actions that these false teachers in Jude will be judged for. And perhaps these are some sins that you will be judged for as well. However, our sins can be infinitely creative in the way they manifest themselves, right? Jude's list here is not exhaustive. He's just applying it particularly to these false teachers. But as you examine your heart and your life, and if you ask the Holy Spirit to show you, he will show you sin in your life. Sin in your life that you need to repent of. Sin in your life that you will be judged for. So as we think about the question, who will be judged? The answer is, all of us, all of us, for we are the ungodly. That's Jude's talking about you. He's talking about me. We are the ungodly who bear the burden of guilt and punishment for our sin. The punishment, the Bible says, is death, an eternal death at that. And yes, we have to remind ourselves, Jesus is the judge and he will execute judgment upon us, upon you, upon me. For in the heavenly courtroom, 
When we all stand before Jesus, we will all be convicted of ungodliness and we will face the consequences of sin in eternal death. I can't stop with just those two questions. There's a third question that Jude doesn't get to yet here. He's going to in a little bit, but I want to ask it this morning. Who will be justified? Who will be justified? So if Jesus is the judge and we're all ungodly, the question really is, is who then can be saved? Who will be justified? Who will be made right before God? So I can't speak of the reality of God's judgment here in this text without also proclaiming the grace of God's salvation for sinners like you and me. Because in light of the judgment of Christ that we bear because of our sin, this is the question, how can we be saved? Who then is righteous? This is the great problem the Bible says that you have, that I have. The problem is that we are sinners who stand condemned before a holy God. That's your greatest problem. And maybe this morning you've got lots of problems, and if I sat down with you and asked you to share them all with me, you could could rattle them all off, and there might be a lot of problems there. But your greatest problem is you're a sinner before a holy God. And we can't escape God's judgment in our own power. You can't make restitution for it. You can't simply have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds and hope that somehow you're going to have a positive bank account balance before God. That's not the way it works. No, the, the debt we owe before God is incalculable. It's sort of like the national debt, right? It just keeps piling up bigger and bigger and bigger. It's a, it's a number so great, we have a hard time even imagining how much money that is. This is the debt we owe before God. It's an infinite debt because the damage we've done to mar God's glory and holiness deserves infinite punishment. Why? Because he is an infinite God. He is that good, that glorious. And so our sin deserves infinite punishment because we've sinned against an infinitely glorious God. And so we can't escape God's judgment by restitution. We also can't escape God's judgment simply by remorse either. Feeling sorry for what you've done will not spare you from the eternal punishment that you deserve. You can't justify yourself by feeling badly or guilty. Self-loathsomeness can't save you. So how can we justify ourselves? And the the biblical answer is that we, we just can't. We can't save ourselves. We can't wiggle out of God's judgment and and escape it through restitution or remorse. So we can't justify ourselves. We can't make ourselves right before God. But the good news of the gospel is that God can. God can do it. He can justify us. Because by God's incredible mercy, God justifies the ungodly, meaning you and me. He does it through the sacrifice of his son. You see, Jesus is not just the judge who delivers the verdict of condemnation. Yes, he is. And we ought not to forget it. But Jesus then steps into our place and he bears the weight of punishment for us. You see, at the cross, Jesus died in the place of ungodly sinners like you and like me. Listen to the the good news of Romans chapter five, verse six 
through 11. This is precious, precious truths. Here's what Paul writes about Jesus. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is what the gospel is about. That because Christ has died for us, that we are now justified by his blood. Jesus did pay it all. And so the way we receive this forgiveness that God offers is by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That we are justified by faith alone. And we are made righteous by the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. This is our God who overflows in love and graciousness for sinners like you and me. That we are justified by God's grace. That our sin has been condemned. Yes, it has. But Christ Jesus takes that burden that we talked about. He takes it off of, off of your back and he puts it on his back. And then he walks the lonely trip to the cross towards Golgotha's hill to die in your place. He carries your burden for you. His yoke is easy and light. Come to him, all you who are weary. Weary sinner, just remember that, that you who carry the weight of your sin this morning, that you who are timid and anxious and troubled and concerned and worried and perplexed about God's judgment upon you, the invitation this morning is to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus because he will bear your sin. He will endure your judgment. He will deliver you from the wrath that is to come. So today, repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Yes, we are condemned under the judgment of Christ. But those who take refuge in Christ, those who put their faith in Christ will be saved. So weary sinner, come, come to Jesus. One of my all-time favorite hymns is written by a guy named Joseph Hart, written in 1759, a hymn called, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. And it sings like this, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus stands ready to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace you in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. See, if you feel the weight of your sin this morning upon your shoulder, you're not alone. I've been there. 
Many people in this room have been there. And we felt that crushing weight of God's judgment on us. But we have come to Jesus. We have cast our burdens upon him. And Jesus, by his gracious love, has taken on our sin. And he's liberated us from its bondage, from that weight of oppression and guilt and shame that we carry. And he has given us life and forgiveness and peace with God reconciliation with God. So if you feel the weight of your sin this morning, I invite you to come to Jesus for rest. For Christ executes his judgment against the ungodly. Yes. But Jesus also justifies the ungodly by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you Lord, that even though we are ungodly sinners deserving of your judgment, Father, that you have made a way, a provision through Jesus Christ so that we might be spared of the condemnation that we deserved and Lord, that we might receive Christ's righteousness, his reward as our own. Father, I pray for those this morning who are not right with you. Lord, that they currently carry the weight of their sin upon their shoulders. Father, I pray, Lord, that they would confess their sin to you this morning. That they would fall on their face and call out to Jesus for mercy. And Lord, you promise us in your word that those who turn from their sins, those who have faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord, as the treasure of their heart, Lord, you have promised that you will save them. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that those who are weary and wounded, Lord, they would find refuge in Jesus this morning. And Lord, so be justified, made right before you because of Jesus. But Father, as those who are in Christ, those who have been justified, Father, I pray that we do not forget, Lord, that Jesus is our Savior, but he is also the judge. And Father, that we will give an account for our lives before him. And so Father, we pray, Lord, that as we live out and the wonderful, precious freedoms of your gospel, that we would live holy and godly lives in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you are working in us, Father. So, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be holy, that we'd be sanctified, that we'd be righteous as Christ is righteous. But, Father, above all, we praise you this morning that as we sit under the judgment of Jesus, Lord, that there is salvation for those who are condemned by faith in him. So, Father, we love you, we worship you, we praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.